Hello and welcome to this episode of Cleardcast. This is Caroline Degatti, editor at Clearance Jobs. Today we're continuing our conversation with Jack Barsky, former KGB spy and author of the book Deep Undercover. After living in the U.S. under an assumed name for a decade, juggling two families across two continents, outsmarting the KGB, and trying to stay under the radar of the FBI, Barsky understands the modus operandi of the Russians and the threats that America currently faces. He also understands the struggles of the clandestine lifestyle. He speaks with us here about living with the gifts and burdens of a life in espionage and today's espionage threats. So with that sort of slide back then into the authoritarian mindset, do you see any any practical ways just in the headlines that you can see like KGB style tradecraft or tactics, things that are just taken from the playbook of the bygone era of communism? Well, I have some informal relationships with... uh... Uh, some some of them are ex-FBI and some are active FBI, and they will confirm to you that a lot of the tradecraft has still survived. In the age of the Internet and technology, there's some things that have changed, but think about it, uh, and this is a logical conclusion. Who trained the FSB? I mean, you, you, don't, you don't take, you know, like a regular police force to to train uh, the next generation intelligence agency. You know, the FSB and the uh, SVR, they're successors to the KGB, and as such, they operate in a similar style. That's why, you know, the FBI is still interested in, in, in what they call archaeological digs. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that I was uh, valuable to the FBI when they caught up with me and when we did this very detailed debriefing. It, it was of value to, to the FBI. Are there any specific things that you can name that you notice are similar? I don't have insight into how they operate. The illegals that were caught in 2010, those five couples, mm-hmm. used some techniques that I was familiar with. They used it in a very amateurish fashion. There's still dead drop operations. There's, there, there's still brushed by, by uh, handovers. There are still meetings, uh, according to certain protocols. There are still signals, uh, graphic signals to convey a, a quick message. All of this is, is still in use. And I think there, if you dial into shortwave, you use, you turn on your shortwave radio. There's still a lot of number stations out there. Now, why would that be? Well, <laughs> through the internet, no matter how you can be decrypted uh, six ways from Sunday. But it's point-to-point communication. So you at least know who is talking to whom. Those shortwave transmissions, you know where they come from. You have no idea who is listening to them. Following off of that, as, as you had mentioned before about Russia, about China, about how you know the FBI is obviously still concerned about the tradecraft of the Russians, what do you see as the biggest threat to American security today? Outside of the nuclear threat that is posed primarily by rogue nations such as Iran and uh, and North Korea, when we're talking about particularly our main adversaries would be China and and Russia, it's it's cyber. If there's ever another war, a a world war sort of, uh, I think it would start out in cyber and might actually be finished in cyber. You can pretty much disable an entire country if you 
shut down the cyber infrastructure, and within a week, there's total chaos. So, and and I, I guarantee you there, there is a lot of people in this country working on preventing that from happening, but also working on having the offensive weapons that may be needed to counter uh, such an attack. From your impression, both just in your friendly relationships with the FBI and from all of the places that you that you speak and just what you read in the news, does it seem to you like we are sufficiently meeting that threat or do we really need to ramp up our efforts? This is not as much FBI as uh, I have a lot of connections in, in the IT cybersecurity world. In some of those companies, you have ex-NSA and ex-CIA and, and uh, a bunch of people who were in the know and are in the know what's going on. They will not tell you any specifics, but I have had assurance that, you know, don't worry about it. We're really working on this. We know we know that this is a, a huge priority. I can't say any more because this is secondhand knowledge. So any anything beyond that is, would be speculation sort of switching gears <laughs> if nothing else you've had a very fascinating life as an individual i'm sort of curious just as to like i said a lot of the people who are listening here they might not have been an undercover agent abroad but they are people who sort of dwell in this secret realm that they can't tell their families about or they are doing something that they deeply believe in but can't necessarily be public or might have to make difficult sacrifices in order to do those valuable things. What advice would you offer for people who are involved in that field from what you've learned as experience as somebody who has lived in the world of espionage? My experience is rather rare because I didn't have any colleagues. I didn't have an office to go to. I was a lone wolf. And as such, I have a lot of baggage that I carry with me. For instance, I, I have a hard time accepting help from somebody. I still cover things up that don't need to be covered up. So, so here's the point I'm making. I'm trying to make here is eventually, almost everybody who is working in the secret world will eventually step out of this world, and people need to be aware that you're taking baggage with you that will cause potential difficulties interacting with people who have not been in that world. As I said, in my case, it's somewhat extreme, but it, it, I have also met some people where it was even more extreme. I'm friends with a fellow who worked undercover for the Drug Enforcement Agency. Uh, he laundered money for these South American drug cartels, and he lived a life of a drug lord. And when he finally had to leave because his life was uh, was at risk. He was completely dysfunctional and was very close to suicide. So this is a not just because of what you're doing, but the impact it has on your psyche. This is a very dangerous activity that, that people are engaged in. And uh, it is just almost impossible to get out of this without having experienced some damage. Again, this is a very generic statement uh, because it depends upon the individual and how deep they were and how much they had to uh, create a distance between them and their family, uh, loved ones, and so forth. Uh, it is something that is necessary. Now, I applaud everybody who is getting into this in service of the country. 
not just for the adventure. Obviously, if you're operating on behalf of the United States government, money is not a great incentive. As you've left that world, have there been any things that have been of particular comfort or healing or help to you that that you would recommend to others? If you ask that question, I'd like to share with your audience that very late in my life, I became a Christian and I found found a, a spiritual as well as an intellectual home in, in my Christian belief. That has helped me a lot to deal with some of the baggage that I've had. I don't really want to get any more into detail here, uh, but, but, you know, I, for the most part in my life, the word spiritual could not be attached to me. I had no spiritual center. I had some feelings, but they were like personal. But I pretty much stayed away from thinking about, you know, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is the right behavior that I should exhibit towards others and so forth? And coming to the Christian faith gave me a lot of these answers, which, uh, you know, gave me a better grounding and a better foundation for the rest of my life. Wonderful. I would hope you would know that I could sit here and talk to you for another four hours, but you have a life to lead. While we still have a couple minutes left, was there anything that you wanted to talk about or elaborate on that we didn't cover? I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and he had read my book, and I asked him, so what is your, what, what do you see as a, as a theme throughout the book? And he, would, he, he answered, he said, all the different one-way streets you traveled down where you went this way and you had to go back and then and there were these intersections where you had to go this way or the other way that this is a sort of a zigzag meandering through life the the point i'm and i appended to that i said it still hasn't stopped i can when i'm looking at my life as it was and it is as it is today i'm not really in charge <laughs> every time i i think i'm in charge Something happens, and and that something is triggered by somebody else either doing something or not doing something. I give this one example. My career as an agent could have been cut very, very short. The FBI had a program, an agreement with the Social Security Administration, that the Social Security Administration would notify them when somebody over the age of 30, I believe, applied for a Social Security card. But they canceled that program two weeks before I applied. You know, was I in charge? No. Uh, the, and the other thing, and so now to continue the conversation with my friend, I told him I, I see a different thread that's going through my life. That thread is, can be described by one word, as L-O-V-E. It's really a love story in a, not a, as a, the way most people think about love between a man and a woman. It's about, as I started out in East Germany, I wasn't, receiving the love that children desperately want and need, whether they know it or not. That's the emotional love. That's the hugs and kisses. And that I was taken care of, and I, I was brought up with a lot of discipline, but there was no emotional connection with my parents. And then the next step was for me, not, not having not seen how adults love each other, messing it up in a big way with my first girlfriend, my first love, who then couldn't stand it anymore and just, just ran away from me because I, I overdid it. She, she she got scared, which in turn really got me off track in a, in a big way because I was I was 
so in love with her that when she dumped me, my world fell apart. And and I told myself, that's not going to happen ever again. I uh, did not love another woman for quite a while. But my love became, you know, the love for communism and world peace and all that stuff. And when eventually, when I was uh, asked to return to back to the Iron Curtain, I asked, I wasn't asked, I was ordered. Love made me defy that order. And that was the love for an 18-month-old child, which, you know, came crashing in on me uh, totally unexpected. This was the true love that only happens when it's unconditional. And so I just, I stayed in this country taking the risk that what the what the KGB thought was true, that the FBI w- was about to arrest me, or B, that the KGB would come after me if it wasn't the FBI. This turned out okay. And then, you know, later on in life, I found found uh, true love. And I, I have another child, an eight-year-old. Uh, I love her the right way. I'm still struggling with receiving love, but it's gotten better. And eventually, to round it all out, uh, you know, it's uh, the love of God and the love of Christ that uh, uh, that I found. So there's a there's an arc here that goes through my life, and and it, 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 every stage of this life, love is playing a role. And that's pretty much everything I have to add when you ask these open-ended questions. <laughs> Well, I know you can't see me, but just so you know, I'm crying like an old lady on the other side of the computer. So I appreciate your telling that story. I think your what year was your daughter born, your older daughter? Chelsea uh, was born in 1987. So I think she's probably right about my age. I was born in January of 87. So she and I are the same age. You know, we still have a good relationship and she loves her dad. I love her. And when she was little, I really wasn't able to, you know, say I love you as much as I can do it now. Mm-hmm. You know, time has melted me and made me much softer, even though I can't deny my my German roots. And Germans are, by nature, not very soft. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we when we're on the phone, we always end with I love you. And uh, it's the right thing to do. It's And trust me, with speaking of baggage, you know, when, when I talk about that, the German words, I love you, are very difficult for me to say um, because I never heard them. They were not part of me of me growing up. And that is when, you know, I, I speak in public and, and if I have the opportunity, I encourage people to just love your children, love them with, with everything you got. It doesn't mean spoil them. I'm saying love them. My little one, my eight-year-old, is getting more hugs and kisses and I love yous than the rest of my children I've gotten all together. <laughs> I, I have, have been given the opportunity to, to do it one more time and get it right. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearCast. Please visit news.clearancejobs.com for more security clearance news, insights, and information. Have a lovely day.